good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. If you're visiting with us today, thank you for coming and being a part of our Bible class and then uh, our worship in just a little bit. <clears throat> I, um, I, I kind of feel like I need to, to reintroduce myself uh, to you. Um, and I, I, I kind of feel compelled to, uh, to explain and apologize and all kinds of things with regard to my travel. Um, and uh, I just want you to know how grateful I am for your patience and your understanding uh, with that. Uh, I know I've put things in the bulletin about it and all that, but um, these, these events that I've been going to, gospel meetings and things like that, a lot of that, really all of that, I guess, were commitments that I made several years ago. Um, when I was in Fort Worth area and I was doing a TV program and all that and so there was there was a balance to be struck you know with with uh, promoting that and doing outside speaking engagements and things like that and so I had a lot of these things scheduled out several years uh, ahead and um, and so I, I felt the need to fulfill those obligations and so we're, we're, I'm about to finish all of that uh, I'll be gone next Sunday, week from today, uh, to California, and then after that we'll have camp, uh, and then um, I don't have any other speaking engagements until September, uh, and then um, uh, not much at all next year and moving forward. And so uh, I just want to let you know how grateful I am that, that you're patient and understanding with that, and um, and I certainly don't worry about you <laughs> when I'm gone because you're in more than capable hands uh, in, in that respect. Um, but thank you for understanding, and I, and I, appreciate, um, I appreciate that more than I can say. And we do miss you when we're gone. It's good to be home. Let's begin uh, with a prayer, and then we'll continue our study today. Holy Father, we're thankful for the blessing of Bible study and for this opportunity that we have this morning. We're grateful, thankful for the night of rest that we had, and we're grateful for opportunities when we can assemble for worship as well. We pray, Father, that our, our study today would, would bring honor and glory to you and to your Son and our Savior, and we pray that as we think about these evidences that, uh, that support uh, our beliefs, that we would be able to use uh, this material not just to strengthen our own faith, but that we might be able to share it with others and, and develop and strengthen the faith of others as well. We pray, God, that you would Bless our study. Bless the other classes that are also meeting at this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Let's begin uh, in the 27th chapter of Matthew this morning. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 27. If you're visiting with us today, we are in the middle of a study that we're calling Why We Believe. 
And in the study, we are looking at three major areas of uh, Christian evidences. We've looked at uh, the existence of God and the evidence that uh, leads us to that conclusion, that really demands that conclusion, that God does exist. And uh, just last week, uh, we finished uh, evidences that demand the conclusion that the Bible is the Word of God. And today, we begin the third and final section of our study this quarter on reasons why we believe, reasons that demand the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. And those are our three bedrock principles that support the Christian religion as being the religion of God. And so that's what we're looking at today. We're starting on this idea of the deity of Christ. Now, in Matthew chapter 27, just kind of lay a little groundwork for our study today. Jesus, in Matthew 27, is on trial. He's been arrested. He's going to be eventually crucified. But right now, in this section, he is being tried. He's, he's answering questions. He's being posed questions by uh, civil uh, authorities with regard to, to, to why there's such an uproar about him and all of that. So you begin in verse 11 of Matthew 27. Jesus is before Pilate, a Roman official. And he asks him a series of questions. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you have said so, which is really an affirmative affirmation. He's agreeing to the statement. And he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, but gave no answer. And Pilate then asked him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he still didn't answer. Verse 14. Then Matthew tells us about the custom that they had, kind of an agreement that the, the Jewish populace had with the Romans, where uh, each year at the time of Passover, uh, the Romans would release someone from their custody. Verse 15 mentions that. And he mentions also that there was a, a prisoner by the name of Barabbas. And so Pilate, Pilate, from what we learn from all the gospel accounts, Pilate really wanted to release Jesus. He didn't see that Jesus had done anything wrong. And so he's trying to push it in that direction, but he also doesn't want to cause an uproar that's going to you know, be bad on him. And so the, the, you know, the, the chief priests, verse 20, uh, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so that's what they say. And then I want you to notice verse 22. Pilate said to them, when they said, we want Barabbas to be released, Pilate's question was, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, if we take that question... Just kind of pull it out of that context and just apply it in a broad sense. That's a question that every person eventually has to deal with. What, what do I do with Jesus? He's not been on the earth for, in round figures, 2,000 years. And that question has not yet gone away. Every person who learns about this man Jesus ultimately has to answer that question. What am I going to do about him? 
And when you think about that question and the possibilities of how to answer it, uh, you, you could, I mean, you could ask a lot of questions, but in, in broad terms, we've got about five options. One, we could conclude or believe that he never lived. He never existed. We're going to talk about that in class today. Number two, we could conclude that he lived, but and he was a good man, a good teacher, and people thought that he was the Messiah, but he really wasn't. Option three, that he himself thought he was the Messiah, but he was really delusional and wasn't. Option four, he was a very shrewd and knowing imposter. He was not the Messiah. He knew he wasn't the Messiah, but he just wanted to try to convince people that he was, so he deceived people. And then option five, he was exactly who he claimed to be. He was the Messiah, the Son of God, and all that was said about him is, is true. Those are kind of in, in broad terms what our options are. Well, over the next um, however many classes we have left, three, three or four, uh, today and two more, is that it? Okay. We're going to address these questions, basically. Not in that order and not specifically laid out that way, but we're going to address the evidence that proves that Jesus was and is who He claimed to be. <clears throat> no name has exerted more of an influence on the world in its history than the name of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that both believers and skeptics alike are in agreement on that point. Now, they, they're not going to agree that Jesus was who He claimed to be, but the simple fact that, that Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ has had more of an influence on the history of the world than any other name, I don't know that anybody would argue with that. And because of His influence, His teachings have been put under the microscope more than the teachings of any other person in history. And some have begun their investigation of Jesus as skeptics and emerged as believers. Others have begun as skeptics and remain skeptics. Some who at one time believed have turned skeptical. And so you've got people all over the map on that. But probably the response to Jesus that's been exhibited by the most of the world's billions of inhabitants since the time that he lived has been apathy. You think about it. Billions and billions of people that have lived since the days of Jesus, probably more people have responded with simple apathy than with any other response. Many have simply shrugged him off without much investigation. So it's the purpose of this section of our study, this last section, to examine the evidence that proves, number one, that Jesus was a real historical person, that's today, and then the next two lessons that He is indeed the divine Son of God. All right, so was Jesus real? Now, you might be thinking, well, is this really an issue? Is this really a problem? And I can assure you that it is that there are more and more people who are trying to put forth the idea that Jesus never even existed. He's a figment of people's imagination. 
And I want to give you some uh, of some of the quotes from individuals who are trying to, uh, to um, get people to believe that. This one comes from Dan Barker, who was a former uh, denominational preacher, but has turned skeptic. He's the founder and president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Maybe you've heard of that. These are his words from a book that he called Losing Faith in Faith. He said, the gospel stories are no more historic than the Genesis creation accounts are scientific. They are filled with exaggerations, miracles, and admitted propaganda. They were written during a context of time when myths were being born, exchanged, elaborated, and corrupted. And they were written to an audience susceptible to such fables. They are cut from the same cloth as other religions and fables of the time. Taking all of this into account, it is rational to conclude that the New Testament Jesus is a myth. Not too many years ago, probably, I'm guessing in the neighborhood of five years ago, uh, Kyle Butt with uh, Apologetics Press that we support here debated Dan Barker uh, on um, uh, the existence of God. And uh, that debate video can be uh, found at uh, the Apologetics Press website if you ever want to take a look at that. But um, so, so there's, there's Barker's statement. The New Testament Jesus is a myth. Here uh, a quote from Timothy uh, Freak and Peter Gandy. The Jesus Mysteries. We have become convinced that the story of Jesus is not the biography of a historical Messiah, but a myth based on perennial pagan stories. How about one more? Marshall Galvin. Did Jesus Christ really live? Is the book. Not only has the divinity of Christ been given up, but his existence as a man is being more and more seriously questioned. Some of the ablest scholars of the world deny that he ever lived at all. All right, so, so there's a sampling of individuals who are trying to get people to believe. They've, they've gone beyond, as Galvin says, They've gone beyond now arguing a lot about whether or not Jesus was divine. And now a lot of people are just simply dismissing his, his very existence. He never even was. And so we have to deal with that. Uh, are these guys right? Or are they wishful thinkers who, for whatever reasons, just don't want to believe in a historical Jesus? Now, this as kind of a side point, We as Christians need to be not only aware that these ideas exist, but we need to be somewhat competent in answering these things. There was a time in, in our history, and by our history I mean uh, our, our nation, our culture, when for the most part people had 
a belief in and an acceptance of the existence of God, that, that Jesus existed and He was the Son of God, and that the Bible is His Word. Now, people, you know, people would, would go off in different directions on what they believed the Bible taught, and what they believed was right from the Bible, but you, we had a culture that, that at least had that as, as foundational principles. And so when you would begin to study with somebody to try to help them come to an understanding of the truth and to, to, to expose them to the gospel and all of that, a lot of times it, it, was, it was right and appropriate to, to basically start with, okay, let's open up the Bible and see what it says. Because you were talking to somebody who already believed that this was the Word of God. It's getting to be more and more in our culture that that's just not the case. And so we're, we, we may have to start backing up, and I think in a lot of cases we do need to start backing up our starting point when we're talking to people to even see whether or not they believe in the existence of truth as, as a concept. Does truth exist? Is it objective? And then what evidence, do you even believe that God exists? And what evidence is there that He does and that the Bible is His Word, that Jesus is His Son? We may need to start backing up and dealing with those principles before even opening up the Scriptures to say, All right, what does the Scripture teach about what we must do to be pleasing to God? Um, and I think there's biblical precedent for that. When Peter addressed an audience in Acts chapter 2, he was dealing with an audience that believed in God, that had a, had a respect for the Scriptures that they had at that time, the Old Testament Scriptures. And so Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost was heavily peppered with Scripture quotation because he was dealing with people who already accepted that as authoritative. Now, they were messed up on, on understanding it properly, but they at least had that foundation. Paul goes into Athens in Acts 17, and he doesn't quote a single Scripture in his teaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill. Why? They didn't, they didn't have any respect for that. They didn't know what it was. And so he started with them with God. The existence of God. You're very religious and I see all these idols. Let me tell you about the one God that you don't know about. And that's where he started with them. I'm convinced that our culture and our society is now more closely akin to the Acts 17 Athens culture than it is the Acts 2 Jerusalem culture. And, and so these are the kinds of things that we're going to have to start with with people before we can even get them to this. All right? Now, that's just that's Eddie's opinion, but I think there's some evidence that, that backs that up. So this is where some people are. All right. So if we're going to talk about, was Jesus real? Did He exist? Let's look, first of all, at what we're calling hostile testimony. And by hostile testimony, this is testimony coming from people who were not friends of Christianity. These were people who had very little respect for Jesus and the early church. But one of the things that we're going to notice is, even though they were hostile to, to Christianity as religion, they all admitted that Jesus existed, that He was a real person. All right, so let's look at that. I think I've got these quotes, if not all of them, most of them, in uh, the handout. First of all, we're going to look at the words of Tacitus. 
Tacitus lived between the years of 56 and 117 A.D. He was a member of the Roman upper class. He was formally educated, held high positions of these two different emperors. And he wrote um, his annals of Rome in about the year 115 A.D. And in that uh, series of documents, he related the story of the great Roman fire in the year 64. A lot of people suspected that Nero, who was the emperor at the time, actually started the fire and, uh, and then blamed Christians. But here are his words, Tacitus, a Roman, writing about that event. Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilatus. Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All right, so that's Tacitus, a Roman, and you can tell by his words that he was no friend of Christianity. He referred to it as deadly superstition, mischief, uh, things like that. Notoriously depraved Christians, and so forth. All right, so he was no friend of Christianity. But here's the point. Had Jesus never lived, and this man lived at the time that the church was just beginning. He was born in A.D. 56, right in the heart of the first century. Lived in the latter part of it and on into the early years of the second century. He was right there historically as close as anyone. Had Jesus never lived, one would naturally suspect that Tacitus would have known it. Because he lived at the time. Certainly would have helped his antagonistic position... He was certainly no friend of Christianity. Would it not have been helpful for Tacitus to have said, you know what, this deadly superstition broke out, and it broke out with regard to a man that never even existed? But he doesn't make that claim. He simply refers in very plain language to their originator, the originator of these Christians, called Christ. He lived, he was executed by one of our officials during the reign of Tiberius. And so we find that Christianity, its founder, were of such importance that they gained the attention of the Emperor Nero himself. How about Suetonius? Suetonius was a Roman biographer. And his most widely known work was titled The Twelve Caesars, written in about A.D. 120. Robert Graves it was a translator of the works of Suetonius, and he said this. Uh, this I don't have this um, on the, the, uh, the PowerPoint, but this is the translator writing about Suetonius said this. Suetonius was fortunate in having ready access to the imperial and senatorial archives and to a great body of contemporary memoirs and public documents in having him, and in having himself lived nearly 30 years under the Caesars. 
Much of his information about Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero comes from eyewitnesses of the events described. Basically, he's saying Suetonius is trustworthy because he got his information basically from first-hand eyewitnesses to the things that he wrote about. He lived at this time. He lived under the very Caesars that he wrote about. He had access to, to the imperial and senatorial archives for information. He had all of that at his disposal. Here's what Suetonius wrote regarding Jesus. Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbance at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from the city. Incidentally, early on, people thought that Christianity was just another sect of Judaism. And so that's his reference to the Jews being at Rome, causing this disturbance uh, at, the, um, at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus, historians believe, is just a, an alternate spelling of, or perhaps even a misspelling of, Christos, Christ. Now, what's interesting about this, among other things, is that Luke mentions this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 18, verse 2, uh, Luke makes reference to this expulsion of people from Rome. Acts 18, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. All right? So Luke, the inspired historian, mentions this event in Acts 18. Suetonius, uninspired historian, also mentions this expulsion. But again, let it be pointed out that one would not expect these writers, Tacitus and Suetonius who lived closest to the time that Jesus did, to have referred to him as a historical person if he clearly wasn't. But they spoke of him in terminology that clearly indicates that they believed him to be a real person. All right, let's consider Pliny, the younger. In A.D. 110, again, very early into the second century, Pliny was sent by the Roman Emperor Trajan to govern the region of Bithynia, which is in northwestern Asia Minor. And his largest body of writing that survives are a compilation of his letters, in which are contained his correspondence with Trajan the Emperor. And in those letters that Pliny wrote to, to Trajan are several references to Christians and to Jesus. Here are some of them. Well, evidently I've got some that I didn't make it into the PowerPoint, so listen, listen to these. Having never been present at any trials of the Christians, I am unacquainted with the method and limits to be observed either in examining or punishing them. All right, so, so Pliny is in charge of this Bithynian region, and there are Christians there, and he's writing back to the emperor Trajan saying, I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to deal with these people. I've never been present at any of their trials, so he's asking for some advice. He continues, in the meanwhile, in other words, since I'm not acquainted with how everybody else is dealing with this, in the meanwhile, the method I have observed toward those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. 
I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. Pliny said, that's how I've been dealing with it. If somebody brings a person to me and says, this guy is a Christian, then I ask them, are you a Christian? If they say yes, then I give them two more chances under threat of execution. And if they still say yes, then I execute. All right, so also, so these are, this is a part of the letters. Now, also in these letters, Pliny used the name Christ three times to refer to the founder of what he calls this sect. And he wrote that those who had professed Christianity affirmed that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by solemn oath not to any or to do any wicked deeds. All right, so we've, we've, we've looked at several, and this is all still under the category of hostile testimony. These are people that are not in favor of Christianity. And I think this statement sums up well the force of all of these quotations. Even though... They were wide of the mark in regard to the truth of who Jesus was. Through their caustic diatribes, they nevertheless documented that He was. And for that, we are indebted to them. I think that makes an excellent point. These individuals, Suetonius and Tacitus, they they had no idea who Jesus was. But they were convinced that he existed and he was a real person. All right, some additional extra outside the Bible evidence from the Talmud. The Talmud consists of the book of Jewish traditions written down and then codified by a rabbi around the year 200 A.D. into the second, start of the third century. And it includes rabbinical commentary on those traditions. Now, if a person who was as influential as Jesus was, if he really did exist in first century Palestine, then one would expect that the rabbis would have something to say about him. And they did. And one excerpt from these writing states, as you can see there, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Yeshu is the Hebrew spelling equivalent of the name Jesus. So he's mentioned in the Talmud as a real person that existed and that was uh, executed. What about the words of Flavius Josephus? Lived from 37 to 101 A.D. Josephus was raised as a Pharisee. And uh, at the age of 19, he led a rebellion against Roman forces in Galilee. But after he lost most of his men, he ultimately surrendered to Vespasian, who was the commander at that time of the Roman army. Vespasian was not yet emperor. He would be. He was just the commander of the Roman army then. And he surrendered. Josephus surrendered to Vespasian. But at the time, he predicted 
that Vespasian would soon become the emperor. And when he predicted that, he, he found some favor with the general. The general appreciated that and was kind of lenient toward him. But then in A.D. 69, his prediction came true. Vespasian became the emperor. And so Josephus was then given special treatment by Vespasian and was paid money to write a history of his people, of the Jewish people, Josephus's people. And so we have Josephus's writings, his historical account of the history of the Jewish people. Now, it's uninspired, of course, but historical. And twice in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, the name Jesus is mentioned. Here is what Josephus said. And there arose about this time Jesus, a wise man. For he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He led away many Jews and also Greeks. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross on his impeachment by the chief men uh, among us, sorry, those who had loved him at the first did not cease. And even now, the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. You, know, you could also call this hostile testimony. Not as hostile as the, the pagans of the Romans, but Josephus, a Jewish man. He also later wrote this. <clears throat> a man named James the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ, and certain others were brought before the Sanhedrin. He's had a lot of more words. And the high priest accused them of having transgressed the law and condemned them to be stoned to death. All right? So, Josephus. If Jesus didn't exist... He wasn't a real person. One would expect, again, that an individual in this man's position, living at that time, closest in historical proximity to the time when Jesus was supposed to have been alive, if he wasn't, if he, did, if he didn't even exist, if he was a figment of people's imaginations, then you would have expected for Josephus to say something along those lines that there arose about this time a group of individuals who called themselves Christians and they claimed to be following a man who never existed. He doesn't say anything like that. He simply states that this man existed and he even has some, some quality things to say about him. A doer of marvelous deeds, teacher of men that receive the truth. Some people, some historians have questioned whether or not some of those statements in Josephus were added later um, by um, individuals who wanted to cast Jesus in a, in a more positive light. And so you'll find some historians who, who question some of those statements. But you also find historians that, that, that believe they're authentic. But regardless of that, nobody questions whether or not Josephus 
said that Jesus existed. Nobody questions that part of it. All right, so <clears throat> let's kind of summarize what we've got. And incident, let me make this point too before we go further. A person does not have to rely on the New Testament documents to establish the fact that Jesus was a real person. Okay? You don't have to. Now, can you? Well, absolutely. The New Testament documents don't need to be discarded simply because they speak favorably of Christ. Okay? The New Testament manuscripts exist. And, and over the past few weeks, that's kind of what we focused on. Specifically last week when Alan taught about the trustworthiness of those manuscripts and, and, the, and the sheer overwhelming number of them in comparison to the manuscripts of other writings of that time. No, no book or series of books of, of antiquity is more... Um, provable, the authenticity of it is more provable. No, nothing is more provable than the New Testament. It's not. There, there are more documents from original language documents to quotations from other people. Nothing is better attested as being authentic as far as ancient writings are concerned than the biblical text. Nothing is. Nothing is that secure. So the simple fact that we have these documents is also evidence that Jesus was a real person. So I'm not saying that you can't use the New Testament documents to prove that. You certainly can. But a lot of times when you're dealing with someone uh, who has not been brought up, and raised and taught, doesn't have the evidence of the authenticity of the biblical text, and, to the contrary, has been fed the lie all their lives that you can't trust the biblical text, it's not going to be real helpful to just simply open up the biblical text and say, look, the Bible says Jesus existed, so He existed. Okay? There are people today who would come a whole lot more closely to accepting what these pagan writers wrote than they would about what the New Testament writers wrote until they can be taught the validity of the New Testament text. And so you might have to start there and say, look, look here's hostile testimony. Tacitus, Suetonius, these other individuals, that they would not have a built-in prejudice against, like many will with regard to the biblical text. And so if you're starting with whether or not Jesus was a real person, it may be best to start here, and then move to the evidence for the trustworthiness of the biblical text and then build on that. And certainly, in the process of teaching someone, you obviously are going to have to get to the biblical text because Tacitus is not going to tell a person what they have to do to be saved. Right? You've got to find that in the New Testament. But some people aren't ready for that yet. And so these are stepping stones to help people to see that. So, yes, you can and should employ the New Testament in teaching people about the historicity of Jesus Christ, but you don't have to, is my point. You can look at secular sources and see the evidence for that. 
All right, so having said all of that, now, there's a quote, and I think I have this in the um, handout from Edwin Yamauchi. At the end, I have that in the, okay, in the handout. I think that it's a great quote that summarizes the secular evidence. This, this is all evidence outside the Bible. Even if, he says, even if we did not have the New Testament or Christian writings, we would be able to conclude from such non-Christian writings as Josephus, the Talmud, Tacitus, and Pliny, these things, that Jesus lived, that He was a Jewish teacher, that many people believed, that He performed miracles, healings, exorcisms. We would learn that He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. We would learn that despite His death, that His followers, who believed that He was still alive, spread even beyond Palestine, so that there were multitudes of those Christians in Rome by the year 64 A.D. And we would also learn that all kinds of people, this is still from Yamauchi, all kinds of people from the cities and countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshipped Him as God by the beginning of the second century. Now think about that. This is all information that can be deduced from admittedly uninspired writings, but writings that, that that's a lot of people in the world would give immediate credence to. He lived. He taught. People believed that he performed miracles. He was rejected by the Jewish leadership. And even though he died, his followers believed that he was alive. And they continued to multiply so that all over the Roman world, these Christians existed and they worshipped Jesus as God. And, there, and not a single one of those individuals, without, except for the possible exception of Josephus, but even that's questionable, but practically none of those sources were trying to be favorable to Christianity. They weren't trying to establish Christianity. They weren't trying to establish the historicity of Jesus. But they did it anyway. Now, as we mentioned before, the New Testament documents should not be ignored in this. They are validated, reliable documents. But I think it's interesting that there is historical evidence of a different sort that supports what the Scriptures say about Jesus. Now, in addition to all that, you can also find a lot of references to Jesus in the early writings of Christians. Polycarp lived A.D. 69 to 155, who was um, an acquaintance, from what we're told historically, an acquaintance of John the Apostle, knew John personally. Justin Martyr, A.D. 100 to 165. Irenaeus, also early 2nd century. Clement of Alexandria, 2nd into the 3rd century. Tertullian, same thing. Origen, these are all individuals who, who were early Christians 
who also wrote about Jesus, about what he taught, his existence, and all of that. All right. So why do we believe that Jesus existed? That he was a real person? We're going to get to the other stuff about his claims, what he claimed about himself, and the evidence that supports those claims. We'll get to that over the next two weeks. But starting here, why, why do we believe that Jesus existed? Well, because that's what the evidence shows us. And it also shows the lengths to which some individuals will go to deny completely obvious truth. And it shouldn't surprise us. I guess maybe in some ways we probably still are surprised. you got people today that don't even know what constitutes a male and a female. And if people will deny that kind of blatantly obvious truth, it shouldn't surprise us that they'll try to deny that Jesus never existed. But truth is truth when it comes to gender and when it comes to the existence of Jesus and who He was. People will believe anything. But the truth is still the truth. Yeah, Stan. Yeah, the common era. Right. Yeah. 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 That's 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 a good a good point and another evidence of that. Stan was talking about how it's it's no longer history is no longer dated uh, as B.C. before Christ and A.D., which is uh, from the Latin Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, was what A.D. stands for from the Latin. It now it's it's BCE, before the Common Era, and CE, the Common Era. So, that, so they've, they've taken that out of it as well. But when you get down to it, you still have to ask the question, well, what's the, what's the line of demarcation between before the Common Era and the Common Era? <laughs> well, it's the existence of Jesus, you know, but they don't, they don't want to have that in the actual terminology. You've got to dig deeper to come up with that. But yeah, it's another, another example of that. Okay, very good. We're out of time. Thank you much.